I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Today, let me speak to the governor. Governor Gary Herbert spends one hour answering your questions. Call 801-575-8255. Live from the studios of KSL News Radio in Salt Lake City, it's Let Me Speak to the Governor. Thank you for joining us today on Let Me Speak to the Governor. The number to call so you can ask Governor Gary Herbert a question is area code 801-575-8255, and we would love to hear from you. And, Governor, welcome to the studio. It's always great to have you here. Well, thank you, Doug. It's uh, one of the favorite things I do every month. Before we, we get to the questions, and, boy, I've got a few, and I'm sure our listeners do as well, I have to be a little self-indulgent. Thank you so much for attending our uh, Teacher Feature Awards Dinner last night to, first of all, have a lovely evening like that, and then to have the governor of our great state there. Several teachers commented to me on how much they appreciated not only the evening in general, but your being there as well. Well, thank you, Doug. And thanks to KSL and you know Zions Bank and others who have helped to sponsor uh, that event, because it's an opportunity that we don't take often enough to thank our teachers for the good work they're doing in the classroom. We have really great people at... Uh, become teachers. Our challenge, frankly, right now is not to attract the best and brightest into the classroom. Our challenge right now is to keep them there. They're doing a great job, and we see that in the results. Our student achievement uh, scores are way up over what they were just a few years ago. So an opportunity for me to be there and personally say thank you very much for these, what was about 44 teachers of the year from throughout our state was really an honor for me, and I'm grateful to do it. Earlier today, Politico reported somewhat definitively that today was the day that uh, Jason Chaffetz would announce that he would be stepping down from the 3rd Congressional District seat in the state of Utah. Yesterday, when I asked Jason Chaffetz about this, uh, this is what he said. Oh, boy, look at the time, Doug. Oh, gosh, look at the time. Oh, yeah, look at the time. (laughs) But he did indicate that it would be sooner rather than later, and he had made it clear that this was a potential that, and his his term in the text he sent me was depart early. I have had people that I greatly trust uh, confirm to me that today is D-Day. Is it? <laughs> well, if it's in political, they've never been wrong ever. Never. So, and uh, this it, show's never been yeah, wrong. Yeah, so it must going you know, to happen. Uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see. The uh, only person that controls that really will be Congressman Chaffetz. Uh, certainly he's indicated the uh, that he's leaving, and he has indicated he's going to leave early. And when that's going to be, I guess he'll have to make that determination. But from all accounts and all the rumors, and you collectively look at all the information, it sounds like it is imminent. Um, and uh, we wish him well. He's been a great congressman. He served us well, and I don't know what his future is going to be, but uh, we're going to miss him. And particularly, I'm going to miss him in a couple of really important roles that he's had back there, not only on oversight, but he was the point of the spear when it came to trying to get us to have federal legislation to help us with online remote sales, where the state of Utah, as well as other states, we're losing in Utah about $200 million a year 
of old but uncollected taxes, and that hurts our budget and our ability to fund education, for example. We've had several notable Republicans, not the least of which is uh, is uh, Senate President Niederhauser, who has indicated that if he is just stepping down to take a more lucrative position, and again, it's been rumored that it's with Fox News, nobody knows for sure. I, I really do not have any I mean, that's the consistent chatter, but mm-hmm. I have no inside information on that at all. Uh, President Niederhauser said that he would be, he would be disappointed in that. Uh, what, what's the buzz you are hearing on the Hill? Well, I haven't heard a lot of buzz, uh, you know, pro or con. I think there's a surprise element. Surprise, I decided not to run again. That was the first surprise uh, to allow people to queue up. And the second surprise is I may leave early. So who knows what the rest of the the surprise may be. I I don't want to presuppose. But, uh, you know, that's a decision that he has to make uh, for himself. And and, uh, his constituents will have pro or con feelings about it. If it's a private sector job, it probably is not as well received if he was going to be attacked by the president to do something in the administration. But, uh, you know, I appreciate the fact that he served us well. But I anticipate that we'll have somebody will be his replacement, he or she will do an equally good job. We have had people who have left their positions early, at least in, in, in my memory. And uh, then there have been some conversations most recently with Chris Stewart, maybe being the next secretary of the Air Force. And, and, I, and he won't mind me telling this, but he was privately agonizing over that. How could he best serve his country? Governor Huntsman, your predecessor, moved on to be the ambassador to China. And before that, uh, former Governor Levitt uh, left to be the EPA director and then ultimately became head of health and human services. So all of those are just as you indicated, you know, stepping down to take uh, another call from their country. Kind of a higher calling, I would think. When you, the president calls, you, you pay rapt attention. And uh, and in those two instances you mentioned, at least, where there was an opportunity, Governor Huntsman and Governor Levitt, they accepted the call. And by the way, uh, knowing both of them and the results of their, those efforts, they were very positive for not only the country but for Utah. That's right. Uh, Governor Huntsman was a rock star. I mean, an absolute rock star in China. And we've had many trade missions since then. It's opened up doors for us economically that have been mutually beneficial to our business interests here in Utah. And so that's been a positive thing. Uh, Governor Levitt did a great job first with the EPA. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we could use his common sense back there again in the EPA. And I think maybe with the new administrator, we've gonna, we're going to have that. But also with Health and Human Services um, doing some really heavy lifting there may be, in some people's minds, the best cabinet member that uh, President George W. Bush had was uh, uh, Secretary Levitt. I don't want to monopolize this conversation, so we'll go to our calls right after I ask this. What is the procedure? What do you hope? Let's assume for a moment that this will happen, and we do end up with a vacancy. It is prescribed by the Constitution and Utah Code that you call a uh, make a proclamation of calling a special election. What do you hope for? What's your highest hope? Well, if you want to go through the process, I've gone through it. Take maybe a little more time than you've got right now to to tell your next commercial break. But uh, clearly, I have asked myself the same question. What do we want to have as an outcome here? And what is the process we need to go through? And I've I've invested a lot of time in talking to the Attorney General's office, uh, legislative leadership, uh, other legislators, uh, talking to our federal delegation, our own general counsel, uh, and analyzing the process. And we can talk about that maybe in a minute. But I hope at the end of the day, one, we follow the law. 
We follow the Constitution. We do what the statutes require. We make sure that the third congressional district has every opportunity to have their voice weigh in on who they want to be Congressman Chaffetz's successor. Uh, there's a lot of people represented there, and uh, they don't want to be disenfranchised, and I don't want them to be either. And so at the end of the day, I, again, I want to have a good replacement that's the will of the people to, to follow in Jason Chaffetz's foot steps. Maybe without getting too much into the weeds, it seems to me to be boiling down to, do we turn to the delegates that are already in place and they choose the nominees that we, the people, will be voting on? Or should it kind of go through the whole process, even those who perhaps want to go the petition route, maybe even involving a a primary at that point, and then we move on to a general election, uh, realizing that's a gross oversimplification, but I think it's fundamentally correct. Which would you prefer? Well, I think uh, the broader process, the reason we have elections and go through that process you've already outlined of caucus convention, a primary as necessary and available, and then a general election to give everybody a chance to weigh in and be considered so that the people can choose who the next champion of their district is going to be is the best process. I don't think anybody even argues with that. The question is, what about the uniqueness of the situation where we're kind of caught, surprised? It's never happened before other than 1929, Doug, when uh, we had a fellow die in office. Mm-hmm. In 1929, he died in December. They did not seat him until the following November. They went through just the regular uh, election process of 1930, and then they chose somebody to be the replacement. That's what's outlined in statute now, and I think we need to follow that as much as we can and make sure that the the process has integrity, that we follow the Constitution, not only of the United States, but of the the statutes and Constitution of Utah, and make sure that the process has integrity and that uh, uh, people can feel confident that we've got the right outcome, or at least had the opportunity to weigh in and get the right outcome. Governor Gary Herbert here with us. Let me speak to the governor. Let's uh, do take just a brief break here and the remainder of the program entirely uh, in the hands of our uh, listeners. 5758255 is our number. The area code is 801. Your opportunity to talk with Governor Gary Herbert. Reach out to Governor Herbert. Text 57500 or call him at 801-575-8255. It's Let Me Speak to the Governor. Before we do uh, move on, the governor and I were having this conversation off the air. What does the law tell us? What has the legislature over the years told us about some of these more unique situations, Governor, before we take another call? Well, again, let me just say I understand that in the Constitution, the federal Constitution, you know, the powers of addressing the time, place, and manner of elections rest with the legislature. And the fact of the matter is our state legislature has weighed in on this on more than one occasion. And they've spoken directly to this issue. In fact, uh, they may not like the lack of specificity and understand the concern, but they have weighed in on this. And so in our Utah Code, for example, Uh, And I can give you a chapter and verse, but what it says there is, quote, when a vacancy occurs for any reason in the office of a representative in Congress, the governor shall issue a proclamation calling an election to fill the vacancy. It's the key word there is shall. I have no choice. I have to call for an election. And although some say, well, gee, why don't we do this as an appointment process like we've done with other offices? It's because the statutes say this is an election and the federal constitution. I'll just quote you that uh, in Article 1, Section 2. It says, when vacancies happen in the representation from any state, the executive authority thereof shall issue writs of election to fill such vacancy. So this is an election, and, and that 
means it's different than just an appointment process. And we sometimes say, well, I wish they should be all the same. Well, then you need to go back and change the Constitution. And I'm talking about the federal Constitution. We do appoint senators, but we have election requirements for House members. And so, uh, again, uh, what they've done with the legislature, uh, as I think, looked at this in, in the past and said, this will be a unique and rare circumstance. And it is. Like I say, this has only happened once before, 1929. So pretty rare. And who knows what time of year it could happen. Mm-hmm. You know, there are 365 different days in the year. And, and the circumstance, this is unique and special. And so under the current le- uh, legislation, there is latitude given to the governor to call for an election. And we call that, you know, that de- kind of delegation of authority. An example of that, for uh, instance, we pass legislation and we have then rules and regulations done by the executive branch so that it's not all codified. There's flexibility. You can move and modify under the authorization, this delegation of authority from the legislature to the executive branch. Uh, Our elections chief officers, who? The lieutenant governor. Not the legislature, the lieutenant governor. We've worked very closely with them to look at what the possibilities and the plans could be if this, in fact, unfolds. And that latitude that we believe is there is there purposely by previous legislature to say to the governor and the lieutenant governor, you have flexibility, you have latitude because of the unique circumstances you may find yourself in going forward in the future. Now, if the current legislature doesn't like that, then they can certainly go through the process of modification and putting more specificity. But as we've learned in talking about this over the last couple of three years, certainly since SB 54, that the, the words have come back to me plain and clear. Uh, there's not enough time in a special session to, de- to debate all the nuances and all the issues and intricacies that are involved here with a- election law. Uh, we've tried it a year ago in a special session. We have rebuffed on that. We've spent 45 days this past session and certainly had the issue on the table. They could not come to agreement in the House and the Senate. So, again, this is a very important part of our process here where the public needs to weigh in and say, what do you like? What would you like to have a specificity on a special election? I don't think that can really happen very well in a, in a special session, but I think it can, in fact, happen very purposely and deliberately and thoughtfully in a general session. Governor, let's go to our phone lines. Al has been patiently waiting on the line from Provo. And, Al, you're on the air with the governor. Well, hi, Doug, and good afternoon, Governor. Hi, Al. Anyhow, basically, I know you got a lot of big issues to tend to, and anyhow, I want to lower everybody's blood pressure on an important <laughs> topic, but yet relevant topic. Anyhow, I want to discuss your initiatives on clean air issues, and I applaud your efforts. I heard about you, your plan to replace 100 polluting school buses with, uh, I guess, school buses with new fuel-efficient models. My question is, Governor, uh, what other initiatives do you have uh, that might be proposed by your administration in the future? I'm glad you're laying off the guy with the backyard charcoal grill, that's kind of a nice way <laughs> example and all that, where that does very little, in my opinion, though, and I'm okay. glad that's laid off, but uh, can you tell me more what, what your future plans are? Well, probably we need to understand that, you know, if all do a little, we can save a lot, and so I don't want to diminish the fact that we all have a shared responsibility, and there ought to be days that we probably do barbecue, and maybe days we ought to think twice about if we have inversions and and bad pollution days that maybe we ought to say, maybe today's not the day we barbecue. Woodburn particularly uh, is uh, egregious based on the University of Utah studies. It's probably more egregious than we think. 
that being said, you know, the money that we've got, the additional $7.5 million that we're putting in now to removing 100 really bad buses and putting it with new cleaner fuel buses is going to have a significant impact. We've also worked with our refineries, Al, you probably know this, to help them bring in what we call Tier 3 fuels. Tier 3 fuels are lower sulfur content. They burn a lot cleaner. And most of the pollution we see on these inversion days really are coming out of tailpipes, about 50%. So if we can reduce that significantly, which putting bringing in Tier 3 fuels, we're now going to be bringing in Tier 3 automobiles. We're, we're trading out 100 buses. We will reduce about 80% of the tailpipe emissions that we see out there on these gunky days and even on non-gunky days, that's still going to be a reduction, which is like taking four out of every four, uh, four out of every five cars and trucks off the road. That's a significant reduction. So we've done some really good things that we've already put in place, about 21 different laws and regulations uh, regarding industry and commercial establishments. They are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on best available practices and technology. And we are actually, uh, again, trending in the right direction. We will meet all the federal standards. And uh, where we used to have 18, uh, on average, uh, gunky, bad air days on the Wasatch Front, this last year we were down to about seven or eight. Uh, so the trend has got to be good. We can't rest on our laurels. We can't say that's enough. We have more to do. And it really is all of us uh, really working together to, in fact, clean up the air. Governor, are all of our refineries, I believe we have three major refineries uh, here along the Wasatch Front, are they all on board? Uh, not all. Uh, there are three that are on board, uh, Tesoro, Sinclair, and Chevron. And uh, they're on board to, to bring in Tier 3 fuels. We have a couple others we're working on. I think that the pressure, actually the market pressure, is because when you have available out there in, in the uh, gas stations to pick up a Tier 3 fuel, it may only cost you a couple of cents more a gallon. You're going to pick that up. I think that's just going to be the market. And so others are going to want to join force and make sure their products are out there with the cleaner sulfur, uh, less sulfur content petroleum. So I think it's it's moving in the right direction. I feel very good about what we're doing. Um, and over the next couple of years, I think we're going to see some dramatic reduction. Let's go to Lacey, who is on the line from West Haven, Utah. Lacey, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Governor Herbert, last summer you made a commitment to Utah families to get our kids out of stage testing. What has the progress been on following through on that promise? Well, thank you. Uh, I know that's been a controversial issue, and uh, but the legislature, we passed a, a piece of legislation that took stage uh, testing from being a mandatory requirement to a voluntary so the local school boards and the principals can make the decision whether they want to utilize that or not. So I expect that they'll listen to the voice of the people, but it's no longer a mandatory thing. Testing is being reviewed by our state school board. I've met with some of our newly elected school board members here a week and a half ago. I'll meet with some more today. Incidentally, that really are concerned about sage testing and uh, some of the surrounding issues. So I actually will have a brief on that as far as what the state school board is going to be doing more, if anything, going forward. But the good news for you is that the legislature passed a law taking that away from being a mandatory requirement. We have another uh, uh, caller on the line, Governor, who would like to talk about education, Amy from Far West. Amy, go ahead. Um. Hello, Governor. Thank you for speaking with me. Uh, Thank you, Amy. I've, I've recently left the teaching profession and have three uh, three children in the uh, public school system, and I'm really concerned about the teacher shortage. I think that increasing pay is part of the piece of fixing it, but I wondered if you'd looked at 
other solutions such as teach, uh, treating teachers as professionals and uh, reducing some of the burdens that they face in the classroom. Well, thank you, Amy, and thanks for your service as a teacher. I'm sorry to hear that you're out. Maybe you'll have an opportunity to come back. Uh, we certainly need good people like yourselves in the classroom. Uh, what we've been able to do uh, is attract good, b- best, and brightest people in the classroom. The challenge we're facing right now, as you're kind of identifying, is we're we're not retaining them. And that's be- a number of reasons. I mean, it's not just one only, but uh, a number of reasons are because there's other options out there in life. And so salary and benefits really are a significant part of that equation. If we're going to retain people, we've got to pay them so that they can see that this is a good career path and a professional opportunity for them to, in fact, support themselves and their family as teachers. Um, Again, I met last night, as you heard Doug say earlier, with some of our Teachers of the Year throughout the state. And what an impressive group, doing some very innovative, great things. And what I do agree we need to add with not only uh, total compensation uh, and pay the teachers fairly, but also an attitude of gratitude. Uh, It's not easy to be a teacher. I've been a teacher. I was an adjunct professor for seven years down at Utah Valley University. And teaching is not easy to do. And that's probably an easier class than some in, in elementary and junior high and high school. So uh, an attitude of gratitude means we, ne- we need to say thank you to our teachers for the work they do. Uh, they're working more than 40 hours a week. They have homework of their own they have to do. Uh, too often they're taking money out of their own wallet and purse to pay for some supplies that they feel is necessary in the classroom. Uh, we need to, in fact, alleviate that burden. But we need to stop with some of the overly broad criticism. Clearly there's areas where we can find improvement. But this uh, drumbeat of constant criticism about anybody can be a teacher, why don't you doing this better, why don't you use more technology, and uh, we're just throwing money at the problem, has really got to stop because it's not true. So um, there a lot of things we're working with, I have what's called an excellent uh, education excellence commission where we have teachers, business community leaders, principals, teachers, school board members, uh, a wide plethora of stakeholders, where we are talking about what can we do going forward to improve our education and reward our teachers. And we're putting together what we call a 10-year plan. So it'll take us from where we're at here to be the best education system in America today. That's our goal. And there'll be multiple steps on how do we do that and what it will cost us to implement the plan. So I like what we're doing. I don't feel like we can rest on our laurels, but I like the trend. We will continue with Let Me Speak to the Governor here on KSL News Radio. The phone line's available for you. Uh, Marilyn, we're going to be coming to your phone call next from uh, Utah County. The number's 801-575-8255. What's your question for Governor Herbert? Call 801-575-8255. This is Let Me Speak to the Governor. We so appreciate you being along during this broadcast. It's a great opportunity for Utahns to have the opportunity to directly talk with uh, Governor Gary Herbert in a very hopefully relaxed and intimate way today. And let's go to uh, Marilyn, who is waiting patiently on the line in Utah County. Marilyn, you're on KSL. Hi. Hello. Good morning. Hey, um, Governor. I I really want to know um, what you can do and what our elected officials can do to protect our elected people. I know that Jason Chaffetz has been working his self crazy trying to stand up for all of us and do the right. 
And his town hall meeting was the most disgusting, disrespectful, and hateful meeting I think that anybody had to endure. And I think that, you know, I feel like those people are a handful of people who come and they they jeer and they fight and they are bound together under a group of people that are trying to destroy us. And I feel like also when he, if he's leaving this office, has anybody said, you know what, enough is enough. And I want to know how I feel like the newspaper supports these this handful of people that scream and yell and they bring people in that don't even belong there, that have nothing to do with it, the newspaper, the TV, all of the people report what this handful of people are doing. There are thousands of people across the state of Utah and across the United States that are really, really good people that hate what they're doing. Let's give the governor a chance to respond to your, your question. Okay, thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, again, we live in kind of a unique time, although I don't think it's as unique as we sometimes think. It, the pendulum swings back and forth, left and right. And, uh, you know, First Amendment rights, freedom of speech, sometimes can be a little ugly. I remember we had the Nazis marking down the middle of some Jewish community, and the ACLU stood up for their rights to be able to do that because that's a free speech issue, even though it was abhorrent and ugly and despicable. And so, you know, freedom of speech, which is something we venerate in this country, is sometimes not pleasant. Secondly, um, you know, I think there is journalistic, uh, you know, responsibility of how you cover things like that. An editorial comment ought to be uh, to, in fact, uh, say to these people, this lack of civility is not what we expect or uh, uh, tolerate here in our country. And they ought to be, in fact, booed themselves with our freedom of speech, saying, you know, you're a very much a minority. We don't want to make sure that everybody knows that you're the minority voice out there that we will uh, tend to disregard. Obviously, people are, there's underlying reasons. You know, people act the way they do. But we ought to, in fact, be able to have dialogue and discussion with civility. That's a word we ought to use more often in our discourse in politics, in everyday life, our neighbors, our families. Let's discuss issues and difference of opinions with civility and not make it so personal. By the way, uh, we did work with Congressman Chaffetz in that event uh, with security and uh, to make it so that he didn't have threat of uh, worry, at least of uh, bodily harm. And that's unfortunate that you'd have to do that, but uh, that's kind of the day we live in. And uh, and so having security and people there to make sure that uh, it doesn't get out of hand and doesn't get past uh, just yelling and being obnoxious. I, I was just uh, looking at the list of uh, some of the texts that have come in and also some of our callers, and nobody has brought this up, and I hope our listeners will forgive me for bringing this up because it's been such a hot topic in the state of Utah. But the visit by the Secretary of the Interior, Secretary Zinke, and taking a firsthand look at not only Bears Ears but Grand Staircase. Governor, can you give us an update on how that went and what your perceptions were? Well, I have not heard anything back since uh, Secretary Zinke left. But I know he was the one that called for the opportunity. Um, our office, particularly my chief of staff, helped uh, coordinate contacts and uh, calendaring and, and locations, but at the direction of the secretary. So this was his visit. Um, and um, my impressions are that, one, he's a, a pretty reasonable, rational guy. He's not an extremist on any sense of the word that I could see, either on left or right. Uh, I think he's very moderate in his tone. I think moderate in his philosophy. 
I think he was willing to listen to all sides of the issue. And uh, although some feel like they didn't hear enough of the those that support it, he told me, he said, I get it. I understand why they want to support this. And, uh, and I understand why those are in opposition and the concerns that the local community has about this. What he told me that really, I guess, is uh, maybe a, a, a look into what he may do, and which I have no idea, by the way, is that he says this area needs protection. Everybody agrees with that. He said to me, the only debate seems to be what is the vehicle that gives the protection, whether it's a monument or whether it's legislation, or whether it's enhanced BLM opportunities, which they have under their state, under the current statutes. Well, let's give them the protection they need. You know, some of us have argued legislatively is better because you can then empower the Native Americans to have management capability. And that's been one of the reasons for this monument in this first place was, hey, let's honor and venerate the, the Indian sacred lands and give them a chance to manage it better. So um, and then he said it's the vehicle of protection and then the scope, what should be the appropriate size. And I think he was uh, concerned about, gee, this is one. By the way, we found it's 150,000 acres more, which, by the way, that's twice as big as Arches National Park. So it's it's going to be over 1.5 million acres in size. And when you think about our largest national park, which is 337,000, you know, the size and scope of not only the Bears Ears, but the Grand Staircase is stunning. It's, um, for your listeners out there, if you combine those two monuments together, it's the same size as all of Utah County, all of Salt Lake County, all of Davis County, and all of Weber County combined. Yeah. So th- these are big swaths of land. And that's, you know, that gives pause, I think, even to Secretary Zinke. Do we need to have it that big? The Antiquities Act says it should be the smallest area compatible to preserve the objects that need protection. This is interesting. So interesting we'd be talking about this today in this manner because I got a letter this morning from a uh, doctor, and it was a very nice letter. And he said, you know, we take such great pride in our Mighty Five. How about if we went with our Mighty Six? And, you know, I, I would like the idea of having another national monument. But he didn't mention the size. And I recall conversations with you regarding the size of these monuments, comparing them to our national parks, comparing them to our counties, and even comparing them to other states of the United States of America, like uh, Rhode Island and, and Maryland, <laughs> yeah. Delaware. Yeah, this is uh, the, the Bears Ears is the size of Delaware, the state. Uh, uh, admittedly, a small state, but that's a lot of land. And uh, when you look at the uh, arches, started out as a as a monument, four thousand acres, four thousand acre monument, then by legislation expanded to a national park of seventy seven thousand. Uh, we've actually proffered in the uh, what's called the public land initiative to add an additional 20,000 acres of buffer. But still, you're less than 100,000 acres. Yeah. And now we're talking about 1.5 million. And so I think, hey, having the Bears Ears National Park may be a great idea. Probably it shouldn't be any bigger than our largest park now, 337,000 acres. So it's a, it's a million two bigger than maybe it needs to be. But I don't think the Native Americans want it. As a national park. I mean, if we're doing this, at least in part, because we want to protect and revere these Native American sacred lands, they don't want to have a mass of humanity coming down there and stomping around them. And uh, so, again, it's not it's it's not as simple as some would like to articulate. It's, it's a little bit more complex. I'm confident that Secretary Zinke understands the issues and the, the pros and the cons. And I'm hopeful he'll make a, a good recommendation that will help maybe bring us together for the proverbial win-win. Let's take a phone call from Daniel, who is standing by on the line. Daniel, thank you for calling. 
Governor Herbert, this is Daniel Christensen. I want to thank you for your service. Thank um, you. I want to talk to you a little bit for a sec about the caucus system, and we're constantly protecting the public lands, protecting the Constitution, and now we're protecting the caucus system. What are you doing to ensure uh, today that the caucus system is being protected? Well, we ought to follow the will of the people first off, and uh, clearly the will of the people historically been, uh, uh, at least for the last number of uh, generations, has been a caucus convention system. And uh, that caucus convention system has worked very well because it really mirrors the representative form of government that we have in this country, where people are elected to represent their neighborhoods and go there and voice their concerns, their interests and desires, and then select somebody by vote uh, for their respective party that represents their neighborhoods. Unfortunately, what's happened, I think, over the last little while is that we've found people willing to try to what I'd call game the system. Rather than have people show up that represent the neighborhoods, they actually spend, and I can tell you, millions of dollars in trying to stack the delegates. Not that we want you to go there and represent the neighborhoods. We want you to go there and represent my candidate who's spending the money to get you elected as a delegate. That's not how the system is supposed to work, and I think that's some of the reasons why we have some distortions out there in the marketplace. Anyway, that's led to people getting a little upset and feeling like the voice of the people is not being followed and listened to. Hence, we had to count my vote people. And they ended up going out and putting this on, the, uh, the at least attempted to put on the ballot. They actually was willing to compromise, and uh, Thomas Wright was our chairman at the time and said, if you'll just raise the threshold to 70% as opposed to 60%, so we have more primaries, more ability for people to weigh in, the Republicans at large, rather than just the delegates, then that will satisfy us. That was turned down by the Central Committee of the Republican Party. Then they lowered it to 65%. That was turned down. So uh, no ability to have a compromise. They went forward. The concern that the legislature had, and I think rightfully so, was that if we don't find a compromise, which became Senate Bill 54, this will be put on the ballot and it will pass based on the polling out there and we will have no caucus convention system at all. So now, whether that's right or wrong, some of that is, you know, uh, uh, profit sign as far as what's going to happen. But I do know that they had the ability, uh, they were within a, a stone's throw of having all the signatures. And the, the Dan Jones polls showed that nearly 70% of the Utahns said, yeah, let's just go to a general primary election. So although there's been a lot of vilification of the legislature and others for the Senate Bill 54, it was in fact what preserved the caucus convention system that we have today. And so a lot's been done, and I guess there's going to be a lot more to discuss and talk about it. It's kind of reared its head again because of thus all of a sudden we have a unique situation and a need to have a special election, which we've never had before. But uh, I expect that debate will continue. Let's take a brief break on Let Me Speak to the Governor. Phone lines available for you at 575-8255. That is area code 801-575-8255. At 1246, brief break. We'll be right back with more of Let Me Speak to the Governor. The Governor answers your questions. Utah's most important issues on Let Me Speak to the Governor. Governor, we uh, always give our text uh, 
a way to reach you as well at 57500. And if I might uh, just follow up on this, since we were talking about Bears Ears, we were talking about some of the national monuments, this individual said, and let me find the exact text so I can read it pretty much verbatim, uh, ask Governor Herbert if Utah is successful at taking over all the federal lands within its borders. How is he, you, going to pay for managing all that land? Well, there really is not much effort to do that. There's been some discussion about uh, the the Constitution or the incorporation agreement when the state of Utah became a state. Uh, the agreement with the federal government was we would dispose of the land that's not privately owned. That's never happened. And really the argument's been mischaracterized as far as the state taking it over. Uh, what what really should have happened, if you followed the law, was that the federal government should have disposed of the land. and It was sold it to whomever. And we're saying, well, if the courts would find that to be the case, then Utah would be willing, in fact, to take on some of that responsibility. Uh, it doesn't have to be. It could be a shared agreement. Um, and in 1976, under the, what's called the Federal Land Practice Management Act, they actually capped that. And then Congress said, remember what we told you at statehood? We don't have to do that anymore. That's the question where that was constitutional. That being said, we have no desire. I mean, there is, I don't know of anybody in the legislature, anybody that's been a vocal uh, supporter of uh, or maybe contrary to the federal government's management that wants to privatize the land. Uh, they just want to have it managed better to its optimal benefit. Uh, wild horses and burros, for example, which are killing off the grazing rights of our farmers and ranchers out there, making it difficult for the deer herds and the elk herds. That's a federal responsibility that they've just ter- totally been derelict in their duty in managing those herds. Our, our wildfires that we have in our forest services because you can't get in there and clean out the underbrush. There's no husbandry. There's no stewardship going on out there. We have a lightning strike. Next thing you know, we have a whole forest going down. Or how about our lumber industry down in Garfield County where we've lost a complete forest because we can't spray for the bark beetle. Now, how dumb is that? And now we not only... Uh, don't have a forest that's healthy. We have standing trees, which I've flown over and have looked at close, that's just nothing but a fire hazard. So the whole motivation behind all this is let's have better management. And it probably should be a shared responsibility between the state and the federal government. And if we do that, we can actually get a better outcome uh, for the taxpayers' dollars. Let's go to Becky, who is joining us on the line in Taylorsville. Becky, say hi to the governor. Hi, Governor. How are you? Good, Becky. How are you doing? Oh, I'm okay. Thanks. Well, hang in there. Things will get better. That's what they say, right? (laughs) Yep. All right, Governor. My question is about uh, legalizing medical marijuana in the state of Utah. Um, There's so many states around us uh, who have legalized it for medical purposes, which I'm only interested in at this point. So. Um, I suffer from a debilitating disease called fibromyalgia and um, as well as a a host of other things. But um, I was at the Utah State Capitol for the um, Utah Residents for Medical Cannabis rally recently. And there's so many patients in our state who are suffering so badly with many debilitating illnesses that um, research has shown that has um, the ability to help people in Utah um, as well. So I was just wondering what what your plans are for um, potentially getting this access for Utahns. Well, our, our condolences and best wishes on your particular issue, and we hope that you find relief and hope. 
we are caught kind of in the whipsaw, not only Utah but other states, and the federal government say it's against the law. And the federal government has had it on a list that restricts the ability for us to research it on a state basis. And we had an administration, the past administration, that said we we really turn a blind eye to the law. And if states want to violate that law, we won't prosecute them. That's not the way to address it. You change the law. If the law is wrong, let's change the law. Uh, we've, in fact, passed legislation on, uh, in fact, uh, procedures uh, for cannabinoid uh, use. Uh, so for those that have uh, seizure problems, we actually have an ability for you to get that uh, for medicinal purposes. We do believe that rather than just have anecdotal story, there needs to be, in fact, good science behind it as a controlled substance so that we can have it administered, prescribed by a doctor, administered by a pharmacist, where people don't self-medicate, which is what happens with uh, marijuana use currently. And because, um, and, and, you know, the dosage for you and the dosage for me might be different because of our physiology. So we're certainly headed down the road of asking, and I think you'll see this happen over this next year, research being done here in our own universities in Utah on the medicinal purposes and result of utilization for pain and other things with uh, medical cannabis. Uh, and, and that so we're in the right direction. I think we're doing this in the proper way. Uh, we need to have the federal government to cooperate with us, which I think can happen under this administration, which we didn't get with the last administration. Governor, we've had uh, several texters who have brought up the issue of uh, supplying money for the the exchange of the school buses from the old polluting system to what we have now. Some questioning whether or not that is the best expenditure of these monies to basically uh, uh, promote air quality or to go into education. Well, it's come about because we've tried, in fact, to address the school bus issue, which is a big polluting factor, particularly around our children. And they're a little more susceptible to the particulates in the air, and these diesel motors are just the worst offenders. And so the problem is we've run out of money, and although we've done a lot of other things out there, the, the school bus issue has been debated for the last at least two sessions. The good news for us was and uh, they passed a resolution saying if we can get some additional money, the, the next spot we ought to put the money in where we get the best impact, the best return on our investment are these school buses. And guess what? We got an extra $7.5 million that we were able to get from this Volkswagen settlement that was a surprise. And so we've already been directed that's where it should go. But that's not been something somebody says, hey, here's an idea. This is something that's been studied for the last couple of years. Let's talk to, uh, if, if I might, just so uh, before we run out of time here, the uh, lowering Utah's alcohol rate on mm-hmm. our highways mm-hmm. to 0.05, the lowest in the nation, although other places in the world have that same uh, position. When you signed it, if it's my correct understanding, you indicated that you would sign it with the idea that some things would be tweaked. Today, many people have read in the news that uh, the novice driver issue has been, the, the constitutionality of that has been questioned by both prosecutors and by those who are defense attorneys, which basically says if you uh, come from a foreign country, if you are an immigrant, you want to get a driver's license in Utah, regardless of whether or not you've had a license in another country and experience in another country before, you are considered a novice driver, and Mm -hmm. you are not one drop able to to drive versus the .05. Well, you've been around long enough, Doug, to know that when we talk about legislation that's passed, even though it's been vetted, you know, thoroughly, 
that sometimes there's unintended consequences. This is probably one of them. I don't think that's been the intent at all uh, with those who immigrate into our country that they cannot have a drop of alcohol and drive. So uh, that's one of the issues where we probably need to take a look and uh, and see if we can't tweak it. Again, let me hasten to add, this law does not go into effect until December 30th of 2018. That's over 18 months from now. Uh, we do have the ability to review it. We are not the first one. Colorado actually is the first one to have a .05, uh, not us. And then they have a two-tiered penalty system of .05, and then they have a different one at .08 and above. So I think we're going to look at this. We're going to look at distracted driving and other forms, and I think it's all about what can we do to make sure our streets are safe. We had a uh, texture just a moment ago that asked what percent of uh, the state of Utah is uh, owned by the federal government or controlled by the federal government. You keep hearing the number, and I think it's pretty close, 66, 67 percent. But when you factor in uh, not only Native American uh, reservations and tribes, other governmental organizations and and interests, uh, we find that in Utah – Less than one in four, less than 25% of our land mass is private land. And boy, in some of our counties, it is much even lower than that. I know in the conversation with Bears Ears, when I talked with our various commissioners down there, Commissioner Adams and others, wow, it's it's even lower than that. If you're in like Garfield County where we have the Grand Staircase, Escalante, and uh, about 94% of their land mass is owned and controlled by the BLM federal government. That's a a lot of land taken out of your ability to develop privately. Governor, unfortunately, we are out of time. We're leaving a lot of uh, texts, especially a lot of people have texted in today. But we have about 30 seconds. Anything that you'd like to just tell the folks of Utah as we wrap up our program today? Well, you know, we're doing very well. We're not perfect, but by golly, we're doing very well. I had an opportunity to meet with the Bloomberg people in New York here a couple of weeks. They invited me to come back and do an interview. And Mayor Bloomberg, who's a very successful businessman and a former mayor of New York, worth over $47 billion, and I pay attention to people that have that kind of net worth. I think they have something to say. But he just lauded us about the success of Utah. And it's nice to see these great observations by people outside our borders. It's one thing for a politician to say, hey, isn't it great? But it's another thing for have somebody in New York say, wow, look at Utah. Best middle class in America. Upward mobility, American dream. That's what Mayor Bloomberg said. You can actually go to his online and read the article. It's pretty impressive. Governor, we appreciate you joining us today. Thank Thank you you for fielding the questions. Governor Gary Herbert with us on Let Me Speak to the Governor. The J. Mac News Show is coming up next. It's 1259.